As we begin our new series, and in order to understand really the radical nature of John's gospel, it's important you realize just how incredibly different this gospel is from the other three. Historically, the writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. It's a fancy word. Synoptic simply means seeing together. Written, these three, at roughly the same time, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all set out, really with the same intention, to provide a literal accounting or record of Jesus' life. That said, there's one caveat. While each of these men focused primarily on Jesus' Galilean ministry, and in doing so cover much of the same material, you should note that Matthew, Mark, and Luke each write with a different emphasis and with a particular audience in mind. Matthew. Matthew writes to the Jews, presenting Jesus as the long-awaited Hebrew king, which explains why he begins his gospel with a genealogy, a heritage validating the, the, the family line of the king, and he constantly uses this phrase, that it might be fulfilled. You'll find that all over Matthew's gospel, that it might be fulfilled. The prophets long foretold of a coming king, and Matthew presents Jesus as this king to the Hebrews. Mark writes with the Roman in mind, presenting Jesus as the ultimate servant, which explains why Mark does not provide a genealogy, who cares about the family lineage of a servant, nor does he even record Jesus' birth. Mark instead focuses almost exclusively on what you would do with a servant, the activities of Jesus. Luke pins his gospel for the Greek, emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. Luke will most commonly refer to Jesus over and over and over again as the Son of Man, which was a topic of particular interest for the Greek mind that celebrated the human spirit. And yet, John ends up being fundamentally different. For starters, the Gospel of John is unique because he wrote many years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, though the specific date has been debated by scholars for centuries. Did John write before Jerusalem was sacked by Rome in 70 AD, or did he write afterwards? And I'm not going to get into the minutia of all that. And yet, because John undoubtedly had the luxury of reading the other three texts, John had read Matthew, Mark, and Luke before writing his gospel, much of his writing focuses on stories not recorded by the other three. The other main difference between this last gospel and the synoptics is that while Matthew, Mark, and Luke set out to provide a written record, John writes with a particular intent. It's totally different. As a matter of fact, if you turn to John chapter 20, verse 30, the author himself actually provides for us the purpose for this gospel. In his conclusion, John writes, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You see, unique to his gospel is that John John writes intending 
to provoke a decision from the reader. It's a gospel that demands a verdict from the audience, a response. John isn't all that interested in providing a chronological outline or record of Jesus' life in order to appeal to a specific audience. Instead, John, he writes presenting a very particular narrative aimed at getting the reader to believe or place their complete confidence and faith in really two specific truths about Jesus. Verse 30, 31, what does John say? John wants you to believe through this gospel to reach the conclusion that one, Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, the long-awaited savior of the world. But he also secondly wants to convince you that Jesus is also the son of God. He's the Christ and he is the son of God, that he is God made flesh, God incarnate, the God man. While Matthew presents Jesus to the Jews, saying, Behold the king. And Mark heralds Jesus to the Romans, saying, Behold the servant. And Luke declares to the Greek, Behold the man. John unashamedly shouts to all that may hear of Jesus, Behold your Savior and your God. Not only is John honest concerning his his intent, that he's deliberately seeking to convince you, the audience, of these two important truths about Jesus. But John adds that he's doing this hoping that you, the reader, may have or attain life in his name. That's his purpose. You see, John is convinced that a belief in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is the only way that you can attain life, both now and eternally. Everything that John writes in his gospel centers on this very simple but direct purpose. John. John not only invites the seeker to believe in Jesus, but John wants the believer to consider the obvious and logical ramifications that this belief in Jesus should be manifesting in and through their life. And since this is the case, I want you to know of a particular aspect of this series that will be very, very different than anything we have ever done at Calvary 316. Because John writes, hoping to convince his audience that Jesus is both your God and your Savior, desiring to, in the end, provoke a response or a reaction. I am going to close every study during this series doing just that. Giving the audience an invitation to accept Jesus as both your God and your Savior. Now, let me say what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to provide an an awkward altar call. Nor am I going to ask you to stand or raise your hand. Or for that matter, even pray something out loud. The truth is that you're not saved through a magic bean prayer or a repeat after me. You're saved, my friend, the very instance in your heart you make a decision to repent of your sin, accept who Jesus is, and fully embrace through faith what he's done on your behalf. The prayer just reflects what's already happened. This is how it's going to work. 
While a prayer doesn't change a heart, it is true, a changed heart will always pray a prayer. When I finish the study, I'm going to simply invite anyone who's never accepted Jesus but is today convinced of the truth and has accepted the implications to just pray a prayer, a simple prayer, right where you're sitting in the quietness of your soul. It will be short and sweet and to the point. And and understand, this is not going to change the emphasis of our study. Zach isn't going all Baptist on you. I'm not becoming an evangelist. As with any book of the Bible, we will travel through John with the specific desire to equip Christians for the ministry as we do any book. That said, because the very nature of John's purpose in writing is to provoke a response, I think it's only appropriate that we do the same. Now, it's with all that in mind, that John's stylistic approach, while so much different from the others, actually makes a lot of logical sense. As mentioned, John not only has zero interest in chronology or providing a record of events, but since there is a specific intent and purpose to his writing, John's choice of narrative, what new material to include about Jesus, it's thematic. Notice again in John 20, the verse that we read, that while Jesus did many other signs, John says, these are written, that you may believe. In the Greek, this word that we have translated as signs, it implies an unusual occurrence that distinguished a person from others. One definition of this ancient uh, Greek word literally states, quote, a sign is a miracle by which God authenticates someone or, or a person. You see, in order to prove Jesus as being both the Christ and the Son of God so that you'll believe in him and have life, John presents more than just random stories about Jesus. John presents particular signs to accomplish this aim. Specifically, John will choose seven miracles that Jesus performed, seven being completion, He will choose seven I am statements that Jesus makes of himself, as well as recording seven post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples. These are the signs Jesus will present as the evidence that he is both the Christ and the Son of God so that you may have life. And it's along these lines, as we're going to see, that John does something more than simply present an action or a sermon of Jesus like the other Gospels do. Instead, John will record a sermon, he will record a story, a miracle, he'll record something, but this is what John does that the others don't. He will specifically follow that event up by tying it to an overarching truth about Jesus. The reality is John's approach, his writing style, it's brilliant. Now before we dive into the text, I think it would also be helpful to our understanding of this gospel that we take a few additional moments and discuss the author himself. So you know who's writing. This John. It's not John the Baptist. It's the apostle John. And the truth is that this John is an interesting biblical character in his own right, who frankly possessed a fascinating perspective of Jesus, another reason that his gospel reads so much differently than the others. According to Matthew chapter 4, 
Like many of Jesus' followers, John grew up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Along with his brother, James, John was a fisherman who worked, we're told, specifically for his father, Zebedee. In all likelihood, since John is introduced to us as a blue-collar man, he's in a blue-collar vocation. With Hebrew culture, it's then likely that John was not very book smart. That John, in many ways, lacked formal education of, let's say, a man like Matthew, who was a tax collector and had to be educated, or Dr. Luke, who writes, a doctor. These two men, very educated. John, not so much. As a matter of fact, evidence of John's lack of formal education is undeniable from his writing. If you take into consideration this gospel, coupled with the three letters he wrote to the church, first and second and third John, along with the revelation of Jesus Christ, these five books that John pens, and you analyze the Greek construct, you'll discover that John likely possessed a vocabulary of roughly 600 words. Unlike the Apostle Paul or Luke, whose writing style and word choices and grammar demonstrates a mastery over the Koine Greek. Like Paul is such an expert that he makes up phrases that then are found later on in Greek literature. Linguistically, John though, he was on what we consider to be a first grade level. It's likely John has struggled to read himself. And yet, while educationally, John was way behind the curve, the depths of theology that this man is able to articulate with such a limited vocabulary is absolutely astonishing. Jerome, who was a, a first century uh, church leader, he writes of John that John excels in the depths of divine mysteries. The brilliant thinker Augustine further adds, quote, in the four gospels, <clears throat> John, not undeservedly with reference to his spiritual understanding compared to an eagle, has lifted higher and far more sublimely than the other three his proclamation. And in lifting it up, he has wished our hearts also be lifted. Along with his brother James and friend Peter, John was not only personally called by Jesus to be a, to be a disciple, but John would ultimately be chosen to be one of the 12 apostles. Apart from this, John, along with James and Peter, also had the privilege of being part of Jesus' inner circle. And there was an inner circle. There were multitudes that followed Jesus. There were 70 disciples. There were 12 apostles. But of the 12 apostles, there were instances that Jesus would call three out from the other nine for particular purposes, specific reasons. In Matthew chapter 17, Peter, James, and John are chosen to witness Jesus' transfiguration, this appearance of, of Moses and Elijah there with Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, these three were invited to witness Jesus' resurrection of Jairus' daughter. And then in Mark 14, Jesus would specifically take Peter, James, and John further into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him 
the very night that Jesus was ultimately betrayed. Aside from this, a case can be made that Jesus possessed a special endearment to John. That in a lot of ways, John was probably Jesus' best friend and an earthly context. Four times in this gospel, John's writing, he will refer to himself with the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He says that not of the others, but only of himself. Not only is it clear that, that Jesus and John were extremely close, but John was the only disciple, the only apostle, the only of Jesus' followers in this official capacity that was present for Jesus' crucifixion. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, the evidence of their special relationship uh, is seen when Jesus, seven statements from the cross, takes a moment to ask John to care for his mother Mary. Though during Jesus' earthly ministry, John, along with his brother James, well, they had a terrible reputation. They were known as being sons of thunder. You can study that on your own. But by the end of John's life, he would be known historically as the apostle of love. He goes from a son of thunder, this tag team duo jumping off the high ropes, to being known as an apostle of love. You see, the impact that Jesus made on John's life was real and it was tangible, and it was lasting. Following Jesus' ascension and beginning on the day of Pentecost, John would be Peter's running buddy during the early days of the church. Aside from the fact that John was likely the youngest of all of the apostles, the first several chapters of the book of Acts present John as being one of the central characters and leaders within the first church. Historically, we know that at some point in time, after his brother James was martyred, for his faith in Christ, John was forced to flee Jerusalem with the remaining apostles. Early church fathers tell us that from Jerusalem, John, the apostle John, would ultimately settle in the Grecian city of Ephesus, where he had become the lead pastor of a church that had been planted by the apostle Paul and initially pastored by Paul's assistant, Timothy. During a wave of Christian persecution, John would be ultimately arrested. He'd be sentenced to death through the barbaric practice of being boiled alive in oil. A miracle, though, occurred. The Kentucky Fried Chicken just bobbed. He was spared and then exiled to the island prison of Patmos. And it would be there that we read in the first chapter of Revelation that John, on the Lord's Day, the Sunday, was caught in the Spirit and is given this incredible revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in a twist of fate, John would be later released from Patmos. He would return to Ephesus, where he had spent his final days encouraging the saints throughout the region. Unlike all the other apostles, John would be the only one to die of natural causes. And he would be the last of the twelve to ultimately pass. I say all this to say, the timing of John's gospel, coupled with his very clear intent and his unique relationship with Jesus, make this, this book, this gospel, one of the most profound and interesting 
in all of Scripture. It is indeed the gospel of grace. For John's relationship with Jesus radically altered his life forever. As we turn our focus to the first verse of John chapter 1, keep in mind that the first 18 verses of this chapter, which, full full disclosure, we're unlikely to cover in their entirety, these 18 verses do present for us a prelude, kind of a trailer for the entirety of the book. In these verses, John is going to present for us a thesis statement concerning Jesus that he will then build upon throughout the rest of the gospel. John will here establish the case that Jesus is not only God, but he's the Christ, the Savior of the world. So without further ado, John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. We read, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see the simplicity of his language? All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In a creative stroke of genius, John does not come right out the gate using the name Jesus. And here's why. John knew that Jesus was only one aspect of his eternal existence. In actuality, John will not use the name Jesus until verse 17, intentionally leaving for his audience a bit of mystery and intrigue surrounding the identity of this central character. In these verses, John will refer to him as being the Word, God, the Light, the only begotten of the Father, before his ultimate reveal when he finally declares, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And while John had his reasons for doing this, (laughs) for our purposes this morning and for simplicity's sake, (laughs) no, John, in using all of these titles, is speaking of Jesus. Spoiler alert. We just need to get it out in the open. Makes it a little easier. Jesus here, he is the word. The word that John is referencing Not only will this come into greater view in John 1 verse 14 when he writes that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but all doubt will be ultimately removed when John writes of the glorified Jesus in Revelation 19 verse 13 that he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called, you want to take a guess, the word of God. John opens his gospel presenting for us three incredible truths, three statements about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the the Word. Two, he says, the Word was with God. And three, the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Greek, this word that we have translated as word is logos. Now, first off, to John's Hebrew audience. So if you were a Hebrew, a Jew, 
reading this for the first time, this audience with this particular mindset or worldview, the idea that John is presenting by using the word, it, it was deeply profound and immediately understood. Notice that this was not a word, but the word. John's use here of the definite article, the, intended to, to distinguish this word from all others. In the Old Testament, God. God was known to the Jewish people through the revelation of his word, the written word. So much so, the word of God was synonymous to the Hebrew mindset with God himself. In Hebrews, uh, not Hebrews, but in Psalms 138 verse 2, this is what we read. The psalmist declares, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. And check this out. For you have magnified your word above even your name. Like this is an amazing statement. Especially when you take into account that the Jews held the name of God in such high esteem, you were forbidden to even utter it. And yet the word was exalted even above the name of God. Not only in this passage is John speaking of Jesus' eternal existence. The fact that in the beginning, the word was there. He was already present. But in calling him the word, please note that John is emphasizing the knowability of God through the person of Jesus. Understand, John is affirming the reality that God was not perched high above his created order or out of man's reach or ability to be known. Instead, God intentionally chose to reveal himself to man. How? Through the word. His word. Jesus. While this point should not be lost, and would not be lost, on the, the Hebrew audience, to the Greek mind, the use of the word logos would have been equally powerful, but in a subtly different way. If you were Greek, you, so you don't have the background or the context of the Old Testament or Hebrew religion, Hebrew thought, Hebrew understanding. You're just looking at it from the Greek understanding, the Greek mind. The word logos, the use of this word, spoke not only of a concept or a thought, but it spoke to the Greek understanding of an underlying process for that thought. It's not a coincidence that we often translate logos into English as logic. You see, the Greek would have connected immediately the existence of the word to the thinker and speaker behind the word. In philosophical terms, they would have understood John to be referring to the uncaused cause of the universe. The original cause that set all other cause into effect. Notice here, in the beginning was the word. In much the same way, Moses does not, does not seek to explain the origins of God and his Genesis record. John also simply affirms for us that when the beginning occurred, the word was already there. Jesus is the eternal existence of God, the eternal God. J. Vernon McGee observes <clears throat> that this word was 
is known as a durative imperfect in the Greek. This means the word was implies a continued action. McGee adds, quote, it means that the word was in the beginning. What beginning? Well, just about as far back as you want to go. At all points, Jesus was. In Revelation 1 verse 8, this is what Jesus said of himself. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Interesting, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the Word. The beginning and the end. Who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And not only does John open with such a powerful declaration, but he continues by explaining two other things. The Word was with God, and, not to be confused, the Word was God. Thanks, John. You see, this is an interesting way of setting it up because John is telling us of two important things. Not only was the Word or Jesus God, but in some way, Jesus was also with God. John, he makes it clear the Word was God, but the Word was also with God. Theologically, John is saying the Word and God were the same but distinctly separate. Jesus and God are one, but with one another. Now, I'm going to resist the urge to descend down the rabbit hole. But what John is referring to is what we call the triune nature of God, or stated in a different way, the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible clearly teaches that there is one God and three persons, making a distinguishing factor between God is God and how God manifests in a person. The Bible states unequivocally that each member, God the Father, the Word, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are all equally God, specifically one, but distinctly separate. And if you can understand it, let me know. After introducing the Word, John immediately provides us more information about this member of the Godhead, writing, look at it, he was in the beginning with God. Now, don't overlook an interesting detail we're given, right? Not only do we understand the Word to be the revelation of God as God, but John now presents the Word as being uniquely masculine. He says of the Word, he attributes a pronoun, he was in the beginning. And then he immediately adds, to give us more to the identity. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So simple, so deep. Not only does this phrase, as mentioned, highlight the simplicity of John's vocabulary, but what he's articulating is, is, is radical. The word, Jesus was not only the creator of all things, but John tells us that his involvement in creation continues to this very moment as being also the sustainer of all things. You see, the word created all, and apart from Jesus' involvement, nothing would remain that was created. And this point, John's making, it's emphatic. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul writes that Jesus is, quote, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He created it all, and he holds it all together. That's what the Bible says. How interesting that today we're discovering that there is an underlying language behind the universe. A literal word. Take the human body, for example. Under your skin and bones and personality and intelligence exists a very distinct code or language. Letters that we call DNA. And these letters are coupled together to make actual sentences. Sentences that contain an incredible amount of information that make you, you. One pastor I listened to he made this statement, I didn't verify it. But he said, there's enough information in you, written language in you, to take books and stack them from the earth to the sun three times over. There is an amazing amount of data that make you you in your cells. And what's even more incredible is that today in, in scientific advancements, we're actually beginning to learn how to read this very language and find out which sentences give you blue eyes or a propensity for cancer or make you bald? It's amazing. Modern science is affirming that there is a word behind all created things. And yet, sadly, while there is no doubt as to an intelligence behind our universe, Many scientists, blinded by their own pride, still refuse to make the simple concession that with incredible design, there must be an even more amazing designer. A master programmer behind the complex code. Beyond this, John, John says that in addition to creating and sustaining all things in the word, itself in Jesus John says was life and the life was the light of man though John could have really gone in all kinds of different directions at this point in his text his focus centers on two central aspects of creation light and life understand John is saying that apart from the word there is no life or light in the physical world or the spiritual. That there is, apart from Jesus, only darkness and death. After introducing us to the real Jesus, John then makes this sad admission. He writes, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In the Greek tense, this verse can literally read, And the light continually shines and the darkness. It never stopped shining. See, even before the incarnation of Jesus, the Word, according to John, still manifested a light in the darkness. Jesus was still actively revealing himself to a lost world that tragically, John says, 
did not comprehend it. And understand, the English translation for comprehend, it's rather poor. It's not that the darkness did not understand the nature of the light, this revelation of God through his word. Instead, John is saying that the world made a conscious choice, refusing to take hold of it. That's what comprehend means. Choosing instead to remain in darkness. And yet, while this was the sad predicament, a world choosing to reject the light of God's revelation through his word, how amazing that God did not remain undeterred. See, as we'll see next Sunday, because this was the sad state of affairs, the word, the word that had always existed would manifest to man in the greatest way possible by dawning human flesh. Once again, in verse 17, John will declare that Jesus, the word, came to earth. Why? So that we might, quote, behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And how was that glory? Full, oozing grace and truth. Before we close, if the first five verses of John 1 sound familiar, they should. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 4, reads this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. It's not an accident that John specifically ties the beginning of his gospel, back to the creation narrative provided in Genesis. You see, from a macro perspective, John's reasoning for doing this is incredibly profound. In Genesis 1, God created all things, right? And the crescendo of his creation was man, whom he specifically formed into his image and his likeness. God spoke, what? the word, and things that didn't exist came into immediate being. Sadly, though, just two chapters later, God's perfect creation experienced a devastation of sorts. Man rebelled against his creator. Sin entered the equation, and all of creation was marred from its original design. What was perfect had fallen. Light and life were replaced with darkness and death. The created order immediately began spiraling into chaos. Now, what's amazing is that John, <laughs> it's brilliant, John intentionally presents Jesus as both God and Savior in the context of Genesis 1. For as those first four verses describe for us the original creation, one ultimately corrupted by sin, what John will discuss in his gospel ends up representing or presenting for us a recreation. One in which Jesus, the Word, the Creator, the Sustainer, comes to earth and pays the penalty for sin. And in doing so, brings about the restoration of what was marred 
from the original creation. In a way, what God created in Genesis, Jesus specifically came to earth to recreate, which is why John opens his gospel the same way that we have Genesis. You see, we'll see in John's gospel, God's light through Jesus shining forth in a world that had been darkened by sin. And Jesus, this word, providing life in place of death. Friend, John is making a few things crystal clear. I mean, right from the beginning. Though man has made a mess of God's creation, yielding a life in darkness, one that ultimately leads to death, it was Jesus, the word, that willingly chose to step out of eternity, to step out of heaven and come to earth to do something about it. This morning, if you find yourself lost, overwhelmed with the darkness, if you find yourself dead inside, never forget that it is in Jesus and in Jesus only that you will find life. And that life is the light of men. As we close...